Louisiana Eats is brought to you with support from Louisiana Fish Fry, a staple of Louisiana kitchens for nearly 40 years. Maker of batters, coatings, boils, tartar sauce, cocktail sauce, and more. Dig into homemade Louisiana flavor. From our studios in the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans, this is Louisiana Eats. I'm Poppy Tooker. I've always believed that food just tastes better when you know the farmer who grew it, the beekeeper who spun the honey from the hive, or the cottage producer of some delicious new fermentation purchased from your farmer's market. On this week's show, we're gonna meet them all. We'll begin at J.D. Blueberry Farm in Poplarville, Mississippi, where Donald Vandewerken and Jeff Brown have been growing the biggest, sweetest, best blueberries in the region. Then we'll visit with Matthew Rayford, self-described chef farmer who's spreading the good word of his Gullah Geechee heritage through a new book, Bress and Yam. Before we travel to Northern California to visit the apiary of beekeeping guru Spencer Marshall. We're crossing the country for an ultimate fork to table experience on this week's Louisiana Eats. Donald Vandewerken and Jeff Brown have been in the blueberry business since 2004 when they founded J.D. Farms in the small town of Poplarville, Mississippi. Taking advantage of the region's acidic soil, perfect for cultivating blueberries, they soon became regular vendors at the Crescent City Farmer's Market, selling two products, fresh blueberries and frozen blueberries. Since then, their output has grown dramatically. For one, Jeff and Don expanded their farm to cultivate tea. Listeners may remember our tour of that operation some months back. But when it comes to blueberries, today, in addition to blueberries by the pint, they sell all matter of blueberry products, ranging from juice, tea, and coffee to popsicles, jams, and jellies. The Louisiana Eats crew paid a visit to Don and Jeff's farm one hot and humid June morning. The two farmers joined us outside their blueberry fields, which they were in the process of harvesting. From where we stood, the towering bushes obscured the horizon. Hi, I'm Jeff Brown, the J of J.D. Farms. I'm Don Vandewerken, the D in J&D Farms. <laughs> this is Charlie. We are in Poplarville, Mississippi, the capital of blueberries from Mississippi, and uh, one of the leading states in the Mid-South for the production of blueberries. Just like in Ponchatoula for strawberries, this region, the soil, and the microclimate make it conducive for blueberries. So how big is your blueberry operation? Uh, this farm here has approximately 16 acres of blueberries the farm is a total of 48 acres here, but we also custom harvest another 20 acres down the road. What's the yield from your acreage? Typically, we can get anywhere from uh, 1,500 
to about 2,000 pounds per acre when we're being very conservative. On some varieties, we can go as high as 3,000 pounds per acre. So if you're looking at our fields now, we're standing in the fields, we have several different varieties of blueberries. What we grow here are rabbit eye varieties. And these are all mainstay varieties for the area. Um, I'll also point out that maybe 10 miles down the road here is the USDA Blueberry Research Center, where all the subtropical or tempered climate blueberry research goes on. There, they came up with a variety called Biloxi. And the reason why we have blueberries year-round is because of that variety developed right here. We can't really grow it here because of they, it's mostly a high desert. But if when you're getting blueberries in December and January, it's because of the research that was done right here in Poplarville, Mississippi. And then where are those berries coming from? Peru, Mexico, Morocco, Argentina. And they're growing that Biloxi variety? Mm-hmm and they continue to do research on new strains, new varieties uh, for our area and for other, other folks too. You know, I'm a city girl who never even saw a blueberry bush before, I'm ashamed to say. They're beautiful and they're, they're taller and bigger and I, I think older maybe than I anticipated. Would you show me the ins and outs of blueberry picking? Sure, so here you see a, one of our plants. This is probably one of our premier or our climax, which is uh, one of our standard blueberry plants in, in this area of Mississippi. So you see this is all blue. So you would just roll this on your hand and you can drop it, let it drop down into the bucket. Um, then you see something that's over here that's, that's also blue, but then you see a pink. So you're going to be careful about how you pick this one because you don't want that non-ripened fruit to roll down. So you very carefully pick those around that one as opposed if you if you just do this and pull it down of course the unripened fruit's going to fall down too see that one just bumped and you can notice all the berries that hit the ground from the rain and the storm and it's unfortunate but that's part of the, the whole process you know the fields are a little messy right now because we're harvesting but normally you know everybody asks me what's it like running a blueberry farm it's almost like running a golf course you, you want to keep the grass really cut short and we spent a lot of money on cutting grass here. Take us through how your season goes. Well, typically our harvest crop is usually maybe seven to eight weeks long, but generally speaking, you start as soon as you harvest for the next year. So by July 4th, all the bushes you see here, you commented how tall they are, they'll all be trimmed to about three to four feet. Right now they're they must be five feet or a little better because right. many of them are over my head. Yeah, you can see the new growth there and we want to get that off. And the reason why we want to get the new growth off is for next year's crop. So by July 4th, we'll bring in machinery and we'll trim all these bushes. But for right now, uh, the way we harvest berries, we harvest with a machine. And the machine you're standing in front of here, it's called a towel harvester. Dude, that's incredible. Standing at two stories tall, the Latau Harvester is a wheeled platform that has enough height to straddle a row of blueberry bushes. As it moves, the machine shakes the bushes, sorts the berries, and delivers them to the crew. Configured correctly, it can cover a lot of acreage in a short time, eliminating the need for hand picking altogether. Technology in agriculture is amazing. Uh, and. You know, there's no way we can harvest as much as we do without the machine. Years ago, we used to pan pick, but labor is very expensive. So 
you still have to have a three or four man crew uh, on top. You know, we've been here 20 years and we've probably had every neighborhood kid work at the blueberry farm. This, some of them is their very first job. So uh, after we um, harvest the berries, we go into the packing shed for final processing. Don and Jeff led us past the picking machine and other farm gear to a garage and finally a large processing center. Charlie, you can't come in. Charlie, come on. The indoor space was cool and filled with empty plastic lugs, the 20 to 30 pound containers used to transport the blueberries. In the center of the room sat equipment for processing, sorting, and conveying their growing harvest. So the berries, as we were talking about, get picked by the picker and then are brought in and usually, depending on how much humidity there is in the air, we'll cool them here and then we'll process them. And this machine you see in front of you is an air blower and it blows the leaves and the sticks out of it. And then uh, we have a soft machine here that pushes out the softs. Then we have a group of uh, usually young teenagers, their first job sit here and they call it sorting the berries, pulling out the reds and greens or sauce, whatever. Then we put it back in the lugs and then we'd look at what our future orders are, our anticipated orders, and then we either put them in pints or the little clamshells you're used to seeing in grocery stores, or we put them in the green containers, which we are known for in the farmer's market, in the Crescent City Farmer's Market. We also do other things in here to kind of push berries. Um, we have frozen bags, we freeze berries, and that's what you kind of hear in the background over there. We have several lugs of frozen berries, and we'll take that and put it into frozen bags. And then we also, uh, I think what, two years ago, we started juicing. So we take berries and we have a juice press over there, which are about to expand again, where we uh, basically uh, press the berries and we sell blueberry juice, blueberry lemonade. Let's see, we got dried berries, we got jam, we've got popsicles, we've got pies, we've got muffins. We've, it goes on and on and on. During blueberry season, do you all ever rest? <laughs> we dream in blue. Yeah, <laughs> well, it's, it's, we always say that, uh, um, how many years have you been growing blueberries? And we say it's been 20 separate years. It's never the same. It's always a different challenge. Weather, employees, uh, insects, fungus, disease, etc. Hurricanes, uh, pandemics, uh, economic crisis, you know, so we've always managed. And that's, I think the important part here is, is staying to your base and, you know, giving the locals what they want. And if you're an entrepreneur or if you're a small business person and you want to start your own business in the food business, get into the farmer market, they will be honest with you. Now, trust me, we have tried other things and it's been a complete disaster, but we didn't have so much invested. We didn't have a storefront. We didn't have a lot of employees. We, but you had customers at a farmer's market and they come in and they tell you, and just like our coffee success, they're telling us, oh, it should need this or it needs that or you didn't do this right. And so it's a great test market for younger people. You know, our little farm here, we're, we have a million dollars invested in this. And between the tractor, the equipment, the infrastructure, the plumbing, the sewer, and 
In fact, we were talking to some of the other farmers too, you know, it's just not throwing seeds in the ground and watching it grow. There's a lot of other infrastructure you've got to have. This is, it's not for the faint-hearted. That's why you don't see people jumping into it. But over time, we've conquered little battles and, you know, every day is a different challenge. And for me personally, I mean, how I kind of deal with it, you know, because it can get very stressful. In agriculture, there's a lot of stress. I watch a lot of YouTube and I watch all the other farms out there and I always think I had a bad day or I work hard. I, I, you just can't imagine what some of these other farms are doing. It's farmer therapy for us because we see that because every day, every day is different based on the weather, uh, what, what you're dealing with, what type of production you're doing. Uh, and so we watch these uh, YouTube videos and we see that they're all their issues. <laughs> and we say, okay, I feel a little bit better about how my day went today. So. It's just absolutely just amazing. And, just, and a lot of them are young people. It gives me encouragement that other young people are going to get into it. Donald Vandewerken and Jeff Brown speaking to us on their blueberry farm in Poplarville, Mississippi. You can find Don and Jeff at the Crescent City Farmer's Market when blueberries are in season. Right now, you'll find them selling their teas, as well as frozen blueberries and other products grown and produced on their land. To learn more about their operation or to mail order their products, visit jdfarms.us. Why are blueberries regarded as a superfood? And what is a superfood anyway? Stay tuned and we'll answer that question when we come right back. Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with major support from Camellia Brand, Beans Done Right, a New Orleans tradition since 1923. From Rouse's Markets, synonymous with seafood straight from Louisiana's waterways, Rouse's Markets tastes like home. And from Crystal Hot Sauce, made with three simple ingredients, aged red cayenne peppers, distilled white vinegar, and salt. Nothing artificial. Crystal Hot Sauce, how New Orleans does flavor. Here's this week's culinary quiz question, brought to you with support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen. Why are blueberries regarded as a superfood? And what is a superfood anyway? The term superfood appeared in print for the first time in the 1940s in reference to a muffin that was supposedly filled with health benefits. But it didn't make it into the common vernacular until the 1990s. 
berries are widely recognized today as the number one superfood, and blueberries top all the charts. Every time you enjoy a little burst of blue, you benefit from all the fiber, vitamin C, K, manganese, and potassium. One cup comes in at just 80 calories and is also low in sodium with virtually no fat. Blueberries are native to North America with a history stretching back 13,000 years. They've been cultivated domestically since the 1990s. Although their peak season is in the summer, fresh blueberries freeze beautifully without altering any of the many health benefits or the delicious flavor. I'm Poppy Tooker, and blueberries, fresh or frozen, make for some good Louisiana Eats. My name is Chef Farmer Matthew Rayford. Chef Farmer Matthew Rayford earned that moniker while studying agroecology and food systems at UC Santa Cruz after already earning a degree from the Culinary Institute of America. He's a Gullah Geechee descendant of Africans who have inhabited the low country from North Carolina to central Florida for over three centuries. Matthew's roots in the region run deep. Over a century ago, his great-great-grandfather, Jupiter Gilliard, bought a piece of land located just west of Brunswick, Georgia. After growing up there, Matthew left the family farm when he turned 18, vowing that he'd never live there again after the racism he'd experienced in childhood. But after starting a food career in the D.C. metro area, Matthew did return. Today, he pays homage to his family's Gullah Geechee cuisine and heritage in his new book, Bress Nyam. I asked Matthew to share his origin story. My origin story would start with uh, Jupiter Gilliard being born enslaved in 1812 purchasing 476 acres of land in 1874, about eight years after the Civil War. And then my family holding on, not just holding on to that land and not um, just being relegated to being sharecroppers, but actually farming that land, growing up on that land as a young man, not realizing the bounty that was in front of me, you know, um, thinking that, oh, God, I can't wait to get out of the country, you know. Um, it, and so when I say country, I don't mean as in the United States, like, you know, I'm Gullah Geechee, so country means, you know, you out in the woods, you know, you know how to hunt and all that kind of good stuff. And I think that's the beginning of my origin. I think that's the beginning of me. Um, I think it's deep in my DNA of, uh, of doing that. And I think the other part is that, you know, my dad is a baker by trade, so I would be considered technically the second generation to be uh and cooking as a profession, actually almost a third, because my great-grandmother on my dad's side also did the same thing. So it's like it's kind of like those things are like my origin story and feeling okay with it, like walking around with it being like, 
I am a chef and a farmer. I, I, I come from these things. I understand the soil now more so than I've ever had before. Well, um, you describe yourself as a galagichi. Mm-hmm. And for those who may not know what that means, mm-hmm. would you explain who those people are? Yeah, the Gullah Geechee are the West Africans that were enslaved on the barrier islands running from Wilmington, North Carolina to northern Florida, um, even a little bit down further to central Florida. I'm what you would be considered a freshwater Geechee because I'm raised where the brackish water comes together, and that's where water comes down from the mountain area and runs into the ocean. That's where brackish water comes from, where the cool and the warmth hit, it stirs up. And so that that's a group of over 40 different nations that make up the Gullah Geechee as a whole, um, creating a language, a food way, all together um, by being actually secluded from the rest of the world. Um, so a lot of us probably understand driving on a highway, and those highways didn't really come into place until Eisenhower. So the bridges, the, the the waterways being connected weren't there. And so with it not being there, there was only a ferryman to pull something from one side, to, from one island to the other, if you were going to go that way. Um, so these were enslaved folks that were left on those barrier islands to actually die, pretty much. And what folks didn't really realize was that you brought over a group of people that understood how to grow rice, understood how to grow cane, understood how to hunt, understood all these different, you know, how to make netting. Um, how to create sweet grass baskets that can hold water on the inside of them. So you brought them over for those specific uh, skill sets, those trades, and then think that when you leave them, they're just going to fall apart. And instead, they flourished. They ended up creating, I mean, just massive amount of music and uh, foods and based on what was there, what was available. You're talking like local voice before there was ever the word. Well, You have such a legacy in your family and on that land, and yet um, you really rejected that whole idea. When did you decide about this going back to the land thing? (laughs) For years, my nana would say, baby, we're going to do it all this land. And I would go, y'all should go back to farming because that's what y'all know how to do. I've been saying it for years. And for some reason in 2010 I I was sitting there with my nana my mom and my sister and my aunt first time at a family reunion in over 20 years because again I said I'm not coming back to the south and I'm sitting there and all of a sudden I, I believe that the ancestors just came over me and was like say it say it you need to come home and I literally she was like baby me and your mama and your auntie want to know something. We really need to know what we're going to do with all this land. And I just, without even thinking, I was like, Nana, we need to go back to farming it because that's what we know how to do. And no sooner than that came out of me, I turned and looked at my sister, and my sister just nodded her head, like really slowly, like, yes. And I turned back, and they were like, did you say we, baby? And I said, yes, ma'am. And they reached underneath the table and gift deeded my sister and I 15 acres of land. Just, I mean, just like that. And I still, even at that moment, I still felt like something else had taken over for me, 
what some people would consider like a magical energy, like you feel like like everything's tingling. Even when we got in a car and was driving back to Washington, D.C., my sister's looking at me and she goes, I, I, I don't know exactly what just happened. She's like, but now we got this land, what are we gonna do? And you could just feel the energy in the car. My son slept from the time we left Brunswick, Georgia, to the time we got to Washington, D.C., peaceful sleep. Mm. Well, Nana had another treasure for you, didn't she? Yes. Where was that ancestral knowledge really hidden? hidden. Where did she, ha- oh, how my did she hand it over, Matthew? So she, I'm, I'm sitting in the schoolhouse. The schoolhouse was turned into a, a kind of like a way station, a guest house. And my, I hear somebody go, Matthew. And that's what they call calling through the woods where you like say someone's name and kind of carry it. And if you carry it just right, when it hits the woods, it carries through the woods. So the next person hears that name, they call it out again. And then eventually it gets to you. So I hear this, Matthew. And I come running over to my Nana's house and she goes, here, take a look at these. And I'm looking at the letters she and my great-grandmother wrote back in the 40s about what was either being planted or what was being harvested. So I ended up with like, I forgot how many letters it was. I know it was way more than two or three, but to really understand like, oh, we took crookneck squash to the market and we took this to the market and we did this and we did that. The way people used to write letters back in the day and send to each other were literally roadmaps for whatever. Right. Mm -hmm. And literally that roadmap is set down. And so we right now plant according to those conversations like beware the Ides of March. So March 15th, if it hasn't been a frost, won't be a frost. And that has set true for 10 years that I've been back at the farm. And so beware the Ides of March. I mean, you got some time, but don't try. If if you think it's going to be a cold snap, according to the almanac, don't do it. And then wait for that full moon to pop up so you can get them potatoes in the ground, you know, at the end of March. And so I still farm like that. Matthew, you farm and you cook. Mm -hmm. And um, the world is very lucky to now be in receipt of your amazing book. Thank you. Where everybody can have a taste of those generations and generations there on the farm yes and what's the name of the book the book is breast and yam which means bless and eat in Gullah Geechee a lot of people set out to recreate their family's heritage recipes but what you have done over and over again is while recreating the family tastes it seems to me that you've taken that culinary knowledge Mm -hmm. and perhaps just giving it a little lift just a little push um i think it's also comes from like understanding flavor and flavor profiles even better um so i remember coming back home about 12 years ago and someone going oh we're getting ready to do an oyster roast and i literally said what's that and they were like you're not from here and i was like yeah i'm from (laughs) here but i've never heard of Oyster roast. I was used to oysters on hot tin, which was literally 
some cinder blocks laid down, a piece of tin, a couple of holes poked in it, and a fire built underneath it. And then you would throw your oysters on top, throw that wet croaker sack on it, and wait to hear that first pop. And then you went and got your oysters. Well, now I'm seeing this whole different way to to do this. And I was like, I don't ever remember growing up seeing somebody light a grill and put oysters on. And so I was like, you know what? I want to bring oysters and hot tin back, but I want to make, I want to go back to making my own cocktail sauce because I grew up making cocktail sauce. I didn't even know people bought cocktail sauce until I was more than an adult. And so I was like, you know, let me do that in the book. Let's let's not talk about an oyster roast. Let's talk about oysters on hot tin, like the way folks would have done it. Just, I mean, if we think about it, everything that we've we're doing now and creating now with food. Our high cuisine now is Southern cuisine. Our haute cuisine is Southern cuisine now. Like every city in the United States wants to have the best Southern restaurant, the best comfort food around, the best biscuits and all those kinds of things. So, yeah, I just, yeah, I wanted to kind of like raise it up a little bit, but also keep some of it just the same. So right there on Nana's farm, Mm -hmm. on Jupiter's farm, Mm -hmm. You are looking to prepare the next generation. Yes, we are. For what we need to know and what we need to do. There you go. It's all about 150 more years of us surviving. Well, I really hope everybody picks up a copy of Breast and Yum because, in my opinion, it's a must-have for any American cookbook shelf. Thank you. I feel honored. Thank you so much. You're amazing. This was such a treat. Thank you. That was Chef Farmer Matthew Rayford, author of Breast and Yum. In the fall of 2014, Louisiana Eats traveled to Napa Valley to take part in the American Harvest Workshop, an annual confab organized by iconic winery, Cake Bread Cellars. As part of the four-day seminar, we made a stop at Marshall's Farm, located in Cake Bread's Vineyards. Spencer Marshall, the beekeeping guru of Northern California, shared some of his years of knowledge with us as he gave us a tour of his apiary. Well, I'm Spencer Marshall, and I've been doing this for over 40 years. My grandmother had bees on the farm, and uh, her mother, my great-grandmother, had bees in uh, Yellowstone. They actually got kicked out of Yellowstone before it was a park, so uh, big tradition. And, uh, you know, I uh, was around them when I was a kid. Uh, I didn't really get into it till I was about 22, I guess. And then I just fell in love, can I say. <laughs> and that's kind of a common story. People that are, are into bees, a lot of them, is I just fell in love. You know, it's just one of those things. It's fascinating because with chickens or a lot of other creatures, cows, you're not really involved in their life. You observe it, you maybe get their product, whatever they produce. But with bees, you are intricately involved. You're involved with uh keeping them strong like a doctor they have lots of diseases uh reproducing changing the the genetics with the queens 
with the modern situation in the world, there's not too many bees that are making it on their own. So you really, you know, it's not just something you observe. You're, you're a participant. Spencer took us straight to the hives to get really up close and personal with the bees. Those busy worker bees flew in and out of the hive, seemingly unbothered by our close proximity. Now I'm smoking them a little more than normal because I don't want anybody to get stung. How much of an effect have you seen from the, the bee colony collapse issue? Well, it's a whole new world. Uh, I mean, I started this nearly 50 years ago, so I've really watched it. When I started, I talked to the old time guys, and they, you know, almost 50 years ago, they said, man, you ought to seen the way it used to be. Well, I'm the one saying that now. So <laughs> believe me, the last few years have been tough. Uh, one of the things that's changed is we had this parasite, a couple different parasites come in this country almost 30 years ago now from Asia. And there are a lot of chemicals out there that most beekeepers use. Um, most of them are not very good. I mean, as far as toxicity. And I started a program of uh, working with the genetics, working with the survivors uh, of those pathogens and parasites and uh, did pretty well. We've got to the point where we could coexist with the parasites. And because our, there's a behavior pattern called a clean gene that very fastidious, they get in there, they groom each other, they clean out the infected cells. But the problem now is uh, the mites themselves, it's a little parasite, carry different viruses. And so you only need a few to start spreading these viruses. Whereas before I could coexist with a few mites, now it's getting tough. So these hives here for the first time this year, I am using a chemical, but it's a natural occurring chemical called thymol uh, that knocks the, bee, the mites off the bees. So it's tough, that's all I can say. But you know, we're farmers, so we just keep going. See how they're, they're filling up the new cells here? Mm, that's good stuff. <laughs> Fresh new honey. Spencer Marshall of Marshall's Farm in Napa Valley. Visit marshallshoney.com to learn more. Coming up next, we speak with Fernando Garcia, owner and operator of two Guatemalan banana plantations. Louisiana Eats returns after the break. Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with support from Louisiana Fish Fry, breadings, boils, new air fry mixes, and more classic Louisiana dishes available everywhere. Let's all Louisiana. And 
from the St. Tammany Parish Tourist Commission, located 40 miles north of New Orleans French Quarter along the shores of Lake Pontchartrain. This fall includes many outdoor festivals, the weekend beats and eats, and upcoming holiday events. The delicious Tammany taste culinary scene and abundance of soft adventure attractions are among the many reasons to love the North Shore's charming communities. Find details on upcoming events, itinerary suggestions, and more at louisiananorthshore.com. My name is Fernando Garcia. I'm from Guatemala. We have a couple of banana farms down there. They're called Agricola San Jose, and the other one is called El Roble. By total coincidence, while making Bananas Foster in a cooking class five years ago, I discovered that one of my students that day was Guatemalan banana farmer Fernando Garcia. Fernando owns and operates two banana plantations in a country that's hugely impacted by the banana industry, both economically and culturally. Once we discovered our common love for bananas, I couldn't wait for the class to be over so that I could sit down with Fernando and hear all about his life in Guatemala and the challenges facing banana farmers there. Fernando, describe for us where exactly in Guatemala your plantations are located. There's a line of volcanoes that go through the country and divides the country in half, the Atlantic Ocean and the Pacific Ocean. We are on the Pacific Ocean. Uh-huh. Uh, about 80% of the bananas that are grown in Guatemala uh, are grown in the south coast. We are the number one producer in Central America, number two producer in Latin America. Only Ecuador is bigger than us, then goes Guatemala, and then uh, Costa Rica. So tell us a little bit about your point of view on the relationship between the banana, the Guatemalan banana, and the United States. Bananas for Guatemala, it is the second most important income crop. And Guatemala is mostly an agricultural country. Because of the bananas, we hire about 100,000 guys. Wow. Uh, 95% of the bananas are sold in the U.S. And the U.S. consumers are very strict. So we have to be extremely careful with everything we do there. 14 different jobs that need to be done during the growing of the banana bunch. Is there much organic banana production in Guatemala? Uh, Not in Guatemala. Yes, Uh, people ask us about that here in Louisiana. And in our climates, it's just quite a challenge to grow organically, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. It's too warm. We have too many diseases, too many bugs. bugs. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) In order to have organic bananas, you need a very specific area with no influence of anything, maybe surrounded by mountains. That's why we we have great quality, but we need to use chemicals. So there are huge challenges facing the banana industry. Tell us about those. 
Yeah, the most important one is the fusarium. Uh, fusarium is not a new disease. It's mm -hmm. been around for, I don't know, maybe since always. They used to grow one specific line of bananas, genetically identical bananas, and they were called Cross Michel. And they were genetically engineered to be all of them just the same so that it doesn't matter where you go, where you eat a banana, it is always the same. In the 60s, Fusarium developed, changed, and started affecting all the Gros Michel bananas. Bananas almost disappeared. So how did the industry recover from that? Thank God for guys in, in universities, and they, they were doing their job and developing new varieties of bananas, a line called Cavendish. All the world now has Cavendish line of bananas. There are some variations of the Cavendish, but they're all genetically the same thing. So uh, now, almost 50 years later, there's yet another problem coming for the yeah, Cavendish. Yeah, and it's the same disease. They, they used to call it, and they are calling it again, the same name is the Panama disease in the last four years. The world lost 18,000 hectares of bananas. Oh, my goodness. What do you see for the future of the banana industry? We are all very concerned and doing whatever the scientists need to help us find uh, a new variety. For Guatemala, it's very important. For us, as a family, it's very important. Um, we're very happy with uh, the way things are going for the country. So it is nice. It's a lot of work, but it is nice. It's a rewarding job. Yeah, very rewarding. That was Fernando Garcia, owner and operator of banana plantations in Guatemala. We spoke in 2016. Before the pandemic, Adam Orzachowski and Emily Shoemaker were both happily employed in the New Orleans hospitality industry. That's where they first became interested in reducing restaurant waste through composting and fermentation. After being laid off, the pair began fermenting everything from sauerkraut to kimchi to hot sauce and launched a new business, Farm to Funk Ferments. Using refuse from local farms, Adam and Emily are now bubbling up internationally-based concoctions that customers are snapping up at pop-up markets across the region. We joined Adam and Emily on St. Rock Avenue in New Orleans, where they explained their fascination for fermentation. I think at its core, what fermentation is, is a food preservation method historically and also basically controlled decay really like I mean the food is gonna preserve itself just naturally 
and kind of developing the flavors that we want to use is really fun because we barely have to do anything except for try things because it's going to do it by itself. I really love that right now you aren't growing your own food, but you're actually using food that might otherwise go to waste, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so um, we definitely are paying very close attention to as, as zero waste as possible with the product that we use. Uh, we try and bring as much as we can locally. Uh, so playing with seasonal type things. Um, we do hot sauce. So right now can't get too many hot peppers local, but you know, using other things that we're picking up, uh, lots of cabbage and root vegetable and stuff like that. So tell me about all the products that you've been building. Um, so it started with hot sauces. Uh, they ferment for about a week with all the product. Um, and a highlight of ours, I would say, is definitely paying attention to the other flavors that are built into them as well. Uh, it's not just heat for heat's sake. Our sauces generally contain, you know, onion, garlic, all that kind of basic stuff. But, you know, highlighting some pepper or a combination of peppers, uh, there's generally a fruit addition to it. So you started with hot sauces, and then where did you go? Uh, it started finding a way to use the byproduct of the hot sauces. So we do a fine strain on our hot sauces and keep all the solid matter out. Uh, so they're fairly thin based hot sauces. Uh, and to throw all of that hot sauce mash away seemed extremely wasteful. Uh, so it was finding ways to do different things with that. Uh, and kimchi was the first one that we ran into. I think all of the stuff we make has kind of stemmed from, from wanting, stemmed from hot sauce and also stemmed from both of us taking really seriously that like maybe there doesn't have to be such thing as a byproduct. Maybe you can just keep on using it and using it until you, you know, there's just so many opportunities. We started making the spicy beet hummus with the mash too, because the beet hummus was kind of like, or the beet um, kimchi rather. Well, we were getting, we were getting a little bored on kimchi. Yeah. And so we were like, what else can we do? And that's just kind of, I think the idea of like all of our stuff kind of going down from that hot sauce, using the mash and just trying to figure out ways to use like every single part of the things that were, whether it's purchasing or gardening or whatever the case may be. What does the future hold? What are you all hoping that this business will become or do for you? I think working into the farming aspect and the kind of working straight from the soil to a product that we're finishing is something that I think will be very personally rewarding for both of us getting into gardening and stuff we're kind of hoping we can put a little bit more into the Support. community and all the people that have helped us and hopefully kind of turn that back around what an amazing bunch of products and flavors you've got going here congratulations thank you, thank you so you much, much. That was Adam Orzachowski and Emily Shoemaker of Farm to Funk Ferments. You can find them on Instagram with the handle Farm to Funk. That's it for this week's edition of Louisiana Eats edible content for Louisiana food lovers. What are you doing the day after Christmas? Drag Queen Brunch at Tujac's is guaranteed to be the perfect antidote to any holiday blues. Learn more by calling the restaurant at 
525-8676. And if you're still searching for the perfect holiday gift, visit poppytooker.com where you can order copies of all my books, including Drag Queen Brunch. Reservations and an autographed book? That's a special present. Catch up on previous editions of Louisiana Eats on poppytooker.com, where we have 10 years of Louisiana Eats editions available for pod and webcasting, along with recipes and cooking class videos, too. If you like our show, please rate it on your preferred podcast platform. Louisiana Eats is made possible with major support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen, Louisiana Fish Fry, Camellia Brand Beans, Crystal Hot Sauce, Rouse's Markets, the St. Tammany Parish Tourist Commission, and from D'Agostino Pasta. Handcrafted in Louisiana from semolina wheat and air-dried over rods in wooden cellars, D'Agostino Pasta is made just as it's been done in Sicily for centuries. D'Agostino's specialty gift boxes are available now for corporate gifts and other holiday occasions. Visit D'AgostinoPasta.com to learn more. Support for Louisiana Eats also comes from Gulf Coast Blenders. For more than 30 years, Gulf Coast Blenders has produced custom spice and dry blends for restaurant concepts across the country. Gulf Coast Blenders, dry ingredient blends with New Orleans roots. To learn more, visit GulfCoastBlenders.com. Original theme music composed by David Pomerleau and performed by Johnny Sketch and the Dirty Notes. Big thanks to senior producer Joe Schreiner, producer and special projects manager Reggie Morris, and producer Blake Longlinay. And to our business manager and social media maven, Maddie Mulladew. Catch up with us anytime on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, too. Louisiana Eats is a production of Poppy Tooker Broadcasting.